Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to the news meeting. Each week, we bring you into the newsroom to hear the arguments that happen in meetings just like this every day. Three journalists are going to pitch their top story of the week to me, and then together we're going to try and make sense of what the story is, why it matters, and which one should lead the news. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise. I've worked in several newsrooms at the Times newspaper. I ran BBC News. And my job here is to try and make a judgment about what really is the top story, what should lead the news. So from Podimo and Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. A big thank you, I should say at the start, to Sonia Soda from The Observer, who guest edited last week while I was away. And of course, this week, we reach an important milestone, the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of the whole of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin had expected to take the country in just a matter of days. And yet here we are, 12 months on, and there's still no end in sight. Tens of thousands of people have been killed, millions have been forced to flee their homes, and entire cities have been reduced to rubble. So in this episode, we're going to discuss how newsrooms mark an occasion like this, what the meaning is, what the purpose is of an anniversary, and particularly try and think through what happens to the other stories that are competing for coverage. Today, I'm joined by three journalists. Jess Winch is Tortoise's news editor. She was foreign editor at The Telegraph. She's been on the show before, and I think she chose the top story last time. Welcome back, Jess. Thank you. Uh, Dave Taylor is here. If you've listened to the news meeting, you'll have heard his terms before. He was the deputy editor of The Guardian uh, US, and before that, he was the head of news. We worked together at The Times. He's been on the show a fair few times and has rather miraculously pitched underdog stories that have then won. So welcome back, Dave. <laughs> but only once. Only once. But it was quite an underdog. And then a big welcome to Hashi Mohammed. Hashi is a broadcaster and is one of the leading barristers in the UK. He focuses on planning and public law. Um, but we're very proud to say he's also a contributing editor here at Tortoise. This is his first time on the news meeting. Welcome, Hashi. Thank you very much. Of course, this is a bit different to a normal news meeting. Jess, Dave and Hashi are only going to pitch one story each. Normally, journalists arrive either with pages and pages of ideas, knowing that most of them will get shot down, or sometimes, frankly, with not very much at all. But before we do any of that, let's just pause for a moment and have a reminder of some of the stories of the week. Shamima Begum has lost her appeal against the removal of her UK citizenship. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. This kind of alternate reality that Putin appears to be presenting. Uh, he accused the Ukrainian government of being responsible for destroying the economy, destroying the lives of its citizens. He accused them of being responsible for starting the war. Boris is, is being Boris. But I wouldn't say this is, this is a completely unhelpful uh, intervention. We are now, now able to confirm but yesterday we recovered Nicola Bully from the River Wire. We will never forget Nikki. How could we? She was the centre of our world. The phrase enormously fat for the character Augustus Gloop is now just enormous. Cameraman here went to the Tesco's behind us, and yes, they have no tomatoes and they're blaming adverse weather. So what's it all about? 
All right, well, that's a taster of the stories of the week. Let's try and go to each of you. Give us long story short. What's the story you're pitching? Hash are you first. Local empty coffers. Dave? Yes, we have no tomatoes. <laughs> Jess? Midnight train to Kiev. So obviously the headline writers <laughs> have given the award already to Dave. Despite the seduction of that, Dave, I think we're going to start with Jess because it feels as though it would be odd not to focus on a year in Ukraine. Jess, what's the story? So on a week of this significance, as you say, it's the anniversary, um, one year since Putin invaded, I've actually tried to steer clear of just the anniversary in and of itself. I'm quite suspicious of anniversary stories because a lot has happened this week. The story specifically that I've zoned in on this week is President Joe Biden's midnight jaunt into Kiev, where mm. everyone woke up on Monday morning to find the city shut down very quickly to you know, emerge that he was there. And the message essentially that Vladimir Putin woke up to on Monday morning to find that Joe Biden had reached Kiev before he did. And that, as you said, is uh, a year after Putin and most Western leaders and analysts fully anticipated that the capital of Ukraine would fall within days of a Russian invasion. The the speech that Biden made there, the, the pledge of around $460 million in military aid, is not as significant because he didn't make any significant, you know, he didn't make any markers in terms of sending jets or ending, sending anything they hadn't already sent Ukraine. But the emotional and the political impact of him appearing in Kiev on that morning, the day ahead of making a big speech in Poland, I think sent a very important signal. It was a morale booster for the Ukrainians. It was a very important as well um, message to Americans at home that the support of the US for Ukraine was the right thing to do at a time when certain elements in, of the Republican Party and Republican voters, it should be said, are starting to maybe become uh, more more cautious uh, of sending so much aid to Ukraine. And I think it was also a message else to international partners and and. Um, international uh, leaders, most of probably top of the list would be Xi Jinping in China, because they are also um, at a point where the US and NATO are warning that China could become significantly more involved in the conflict. Uh, and this was a week where Biden was very much laying, laying his claim that this is where we stand. And where, what's the approach you take to a story like that? Because I can see that it's in some ways, in symbolic ways, the most significant story of the week, the US president in Kyiv. In substance, though, nothing's happened. There's not a real transfer of military hardware. It's not the F-16s that Zelensky wants. So how do you pitch that story without, if you like, succumbing to the symbolism and missing the substance? Because I think in this particular case, the symbolism is the substance. As you said, and I think, I, you know, as I said before as well, yes, he'd made no significant military promises. Yes, what we would have liked is for him to have stood there and pledged F-16s um, to, go to, to go to Ukraine. But I think the, the moment of him, of him being there in person, and remember, this is the first US president, I think, to Lincoln to get so close to combat. Mm -hmm. uh, no other president, at least in, in Biden's lifetime and for many decades prior, have, have gone to an area that wasn't controlled by US forces. I think that was about him wanting to take that risk to send that message and it was that and it was important and also to probably for him personally as an eight you know as an eighty year old to say that I'm I can still do this. He has got a he has got a, <laughs> I mean, that's, a decision impressive. to weigh about re election in twenty twenty four. So I'm sure there was a factor. There was in that I'm too. sure that factored in there. Dave, what do you think of this? I mean, I think the symbolism, the split screen symbolism of Putin giving his address and Biden giving his in in Warsaw 
was was sort of magnificent really i loved just the textual analysis that went with that you know the notion that somehow it boiled down to we're here as long as it takes on one side and it's really going to take a long time on the other side and it left me wondering what's this going to be like next february you know how do we get out of this what does a good outcome look like how can you um avoid stalemate but actually also asking yourself the question is stalemate the least worst thing um so i'm fascinated by where what, it goes next and what do you say you know there are certain people who say the news is really judged by where you sit i.e. your viewpoint of the world is determined by where you sit and we are an to an extent, sitting in the wrong place because China obviously sent its most senior diplomat to Moscow in the very week that the rest of the world was marking or looking at a year since the invasion. Have we got the wrong end of this story that actually it's not Biden symbolism in Kiev or the speech in Warsaw? It's not Putin and the suspension of the START nuclear missile uh, agreements. It's actually China that holds the balance between the two signaling that it's choosing, if anything, the side of Russia over the West. Is that not the story of the week? I don't know, Jess? The reason I went for Biden is because that's something concrete that's happened this week. And I thought that was more important, as you say, than China's top official going to Moscow. That's definitely, I think, where this story goes next. That's the most key, that's the next key part of this war is where China goes next. Do they deliver lethal aid or not? Hashi, what do you think? I mean, I have to say, I watched that in the news, particularly with Putin in the middle of that stadium. And I remember just thinking to myself, do all these people all think that what's happening is a good thing right now? I mean, I just... You mean those people in the stadium? People in the stadium, there were people singing, there was folk music being played, there were soldiers, there were people, it was almost like a festival. And I remember thinking... They're celebrating a one-year anniversary of a war in, as if it's a sort of a momentous, important kind of event for a nation. And, I, and, I, and the thing that I still struggle with is I sometimes see those images and I see those kind of events and I say to myself, have I missed something? If I'm sitting here in London consuming the news in the West ostensibly reading the papers that tell me this is an illegal invasion of somebody who wants to take more territory. I then ask myself, what's the perspective of those people who are, are they indoctrinated? Am I indoctrinated? Are they being told something that we don't know? What would we judge had we had that information? That's the bit that constantly plays on my mind about what's going on. Uh, It feels to me as though doing these anniversary stories It's quite difficult, Jess, to do what you suggest, which is take one moment and say that's the story because, you know, just listening to Dave and Hashi, it's clear it spreads everywhere, doesn't it? It spreads to NATO, it spreads to Russia, it spreads to China. So do you end up having to do those rap stories that we kind of hate but are the only way of getting everything in? Maybe in this instance, I really thought for this particular for this particular meeting that it was about trying to zone in on one thing because the story is so big. Yes, it's 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 you can just get lost in it. So I thought, right, that symbolism, that moment was the was the way to go. But you're right, this is a story. The reason it is the best story of the week is because it covers so much and so many of us. I mean, do you think before we even get to Hashi's story or Dave your story, uh, 
Dave, that actually this is a bit of a fool's errand, this meeting, in that it's inevitably a year on from the war in Ukraine. And no, not at all. No. <laughs> not at all. Hashi's here to win. I'm, I'm here to win. I'm here to finish <laughs> second. <laughs> all right. In which case, in which case, I, we'll come back just at the end. We'll give you a chance to be as dismissive of their stories as they are of yours. Um, but Dave, why don't we go to you next? Yeah, well, I mean, I've um, brought something for you, James. Uh, I don't want you to think of it in any way as a bribe, even if it is wrapped up in tissue, it's more of a valuable gift oh, really? um, as long as we're open about it. So it's small and round and red and tasty. <laughs> and as Grandmaster Flash once said, pound for pound costs more than gold. Do you know what it is? It's a tomato. Oh, it's wow. a flitting tomato. <laughs> and it's from Spain and it's the only one left. <laughs> so it's in the whole of the UK. I'm just going to put it in the middle. <laughs> because and, you um, haven't, because you haven't brought outcome. one each for all everyone present, this should be considered a bribe. It is, absolutely. Otherwise, oh, you know, all goodies goodness. should be shared equally. That's what happens when you have a lawyer in the room. I'm, <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I won't take it back. I'll just leave it there. It'll leave it hanging. Okay, so, so explain why tomatoes. So it's the great British tomato crisis. You know, supermarket shelves are empty. Heated glass houses are empty because they're too expensive to run. Fresh produce has been rationed and we've been warned it's going to take weeks before we can put a salad together again. And we're basically surviving on Haribo and Pop-Tarts for <laughs> until May. People are blaming frost in Morocco, soaring energy costs, inflation, the impact of Brexit... And, you know, you've got a government which seems to be um, standing paralysed as it is on a number of issues and losing ground to Labour, losing purchase with their natural hinterland in the countryside. And I think for all of those reasons, it just feels like an epic moment of, um, of national failure again. It's a real moment. Of those three, i.e. weather, energy costs and Brexit, is it clear which one it is? I mean, it, there are some strong advocates for all, aren't there? I think this week, um, you know, Justin King, the former boss of Sainsbury's, was very clearly saying, look, Brexit has ruined this sector. You know, it's put great pressure on. And, you know, Therese Coffey's shown up at uh, the NFU's national gathering, and she has been very clear on saying it's just, you know, a sharp frost in Morocco that's to blame, and, and you can't put the weather on my doorstep. Uh, but apparently, I think Therese Coffey, who was going to the National Farmers Union meeting, didn't go down very well there because presumably the farmers think there's something to yeah. it that's more than the weather. I think that's right. I think the, 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 the major problem that the farming community seems to have is that essentially the government didn't come to their rescue with subsidies on energy. And because because, because we're... We're, we're reasonably self-sufficient, even albeit tasteless in uh, the winter months because of things grown in greenhouses. Just saw on, on coffee, she was questioned by MPs today in Parliament and she was saying it's important that we cherish the specialisms we have in this country and that involves turnips in particular. So she's just written the Let Them Eat Turnips headline for everyone tomorrow morning I on saw Friday. The, I saw the tweet that was lethal remain, yeah. which I thought was oh, also brilliant. particularly good. I remember, I remember that at my local pub during the petrol crisis, the fuel shortages, you know, when there were those queues, queues on the fuel. One, I think, or more recently. More, recent, more recently. Yeah, yeah. And it just said, beer running out, panic buy here. And, uh, and I do yeah. remember thinking, yes, these things spike, but then also disappear. And, and, I, and I wonder whether there's something in this which is, you know, 
If it is a matter of weeks, whether or not that's one of those stories that is about supply chains and the coincidence of events and doesn't feel as though... But it does. There was, there was something I thought that was compelling about, um, you know, what happened when they went into the crucible of the NFU's meeting and, you know, Starmer was for saying that, you know, as he'd said to the CBI, businesses crave stability and they crave they, they crave certainty, uh, and it just seemed to land in the hall with people. And you think, like, if you are going into these conversations, getting an audience, and chiming with them by saying that, and painting this as a government of chaos with consequences, you're winning the argument. I think, and I. I no, there's definitely something politically going on, as you say. You go to the Confederation of British Industry, you're the Labour leader, you get a hearing. You go to the National Farmers Union, you're the Labour leader, you get a hearing. Something is definitely on the on the move there. Jess, what do you think of the tomatoes, the tomato crisis, the, <laughs> the great tom- British tomato crisis? <laughs> I think it lends itself to some great headlines, as we've seen, as we've seen today. I think the uh, when I ha- when I first saw this story come out, I was reminded of I think it was eggs was the most recent sh- shortage when where everyone was rationing packs of eggs. And as you say, whether these things become very prominent in the news cycle and then fade away, and um, I'm not sure if the the egg shortage actually has more has a lot going on behind it as well because of the avian flu outbreak that's um, that's devastating uh, wildlife. But the, as you say, the the image there of supermarket shelves being empty, I don't think is as strong as the image of Biden and Zelensky striding across Kiev together on Tuesday, on Monday. Actually, were they slipping on tomatoes <laughs> they were or, or slipping on uh, bananas? Terrible amounts of food waste. There's a story. Okay, Hashi, what do you think? You know, I, I think the bit that I definitely see with this story is it does buy into that narrative of... Uh, Britain that's not working, you know, whatever that might be, you know, whether the, you were talking about the nurses striking, everybody striking, but then it's like, we, we, you can't get an ambulance, you can't get tomatoes, the schools are closed, you know, the police are, 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 you know, in trouble for this, that or the other. I mean, I completely buy your point, which is the interesting thing about this, the kind of the salads and tomatoes shortages, is it does hook you into our really complex relationship with food and and farming and food systems. But I wonder, I feel as though that world is moving pretty fast. If you think about how habitual food is, the speed at which people are talking about different diets, plant-based diets, chicken fish versus red meat, land use, health and diet, climate and diet... I mean, for the th- first 30, 40 years of my life, there was no really systemic thinking about food. Something is happening. I'm just not sure that you can get into it. Not with, We're all sitting here looking at your tomato. I mean, I'm not sure that that is the, is the gateway a, to it's it. It's on a little... I mean, it's, it's so artisanal, it's still on a little <laughs> bit of stalk. It's magnificent. All right, well, Tempting. We will, we'll come back at the end to, to weigh both Kiev and the tomato. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hashi, I was not necessarily respectful enough of your cryptic 
headline because it was so cryptic. I had no idea what the story was. So why don't you tell us? Yes, local empty coffers to remind you. And this is a story about local authorities up and down the country running out of money. And what we have at the moment, and I think taking it to a local, very hyper-local level, is a combination of a number of factors where local authorities have faced massive cuts over the last 10 years. We are seeing inflation out of control, severe cuts to public services. But the most important part of this story is that local authorities are not legally allowed to go bankrupt because they have what's called statutory duties functions. So what they do instead is they have to issue what's called a Section 114 notice, which essentially is to say, we cannot meet our spending obligations. We need help from the government. We are issuing this signal, and this signals that we are at risk of insolvency. And that has severe consequences. It has consequences for whatever local services you're getting. It has consequences to potentially your council taxes rising. It has consequences for uh, cuts to cultural uh, uh, facilities, your, your local swimming pools, your leisure, your libraries, your open spaces, your waste collection, and so on. And this is a major issue at the moment across the country. Croydon has gone under. Thurrock Council. When, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. When you say Croydon has gone under, they've issued a section. They've issued the notice, and the, and the second, central government has stepped in. Thurrock has has done the same. Kent and Hampshire County Councils have asked for help uh, soon enough. Woking this very week has issued a section one hundred and fourteen notices. So. What we are seeing at the moment is up and down the country, local authorities saying the money that's coming in cannot be matched, uh, cannot match what we need going out. We are stuck. Central government help us. And people haven't really fully appreciated how that's going to impact their daily lives just yet, because ultimately, and this is the real story, the government can't intervene in every local authority. They just can't. Because they can't afford it. They can't afford to. And so what, where does that leave us? Well, that will leave us with local authorities starting to say, we may have statutory functions to deliver adult social care. We might have statutory functions to help kids with disability. We might have statutory functions to do all sorts of things, but we physically can't. And then comes the difficult choices. And what do I do? Let's say I'm in the Treasury and I'm beginning to see these Section 114 notices coming in and thinking, how am I going to meet those needs financially? My instinct will be to say, hang on a second, Croydon, hang on Thurrock, hang on Kent and Hampshire, hang on Woking. Let's have a look at your behaviours exactly. and whether or not you've actually spent unwisely because 80 to 90 percent of the councils have not called in a section 114. So is there a pattern of behaviour amongst these councils that means that they've been kind of profligate or irresponsible? So the, 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 the Treasury and the central government, once the section 114 notice is issued, has the power to go in and do an audit immediately and understand where did this money go? Why did you overspend? What did you spend it on? What was the return? Was that financially responsible? And so on. But that review could take up to a year. Right. In which case, during that period of time, what what are, what are your what's happening with your services, Jess? What do you think of this story? I think it's a really good story. I didn't know, I didn't know very much about this area at all. I had a question which was more about time frame. You said that at this point, the government then has to decide where it's going to intervene, and it can't intervene in every case. At what point do these difficult decisions have to start getting made? At what point are people going to really start to? 
So the feel the reality of this. The chief financial officer of every local authority has a statutory duty that if they think that the legal obligations they have to dispense with cannot be met based on the financial pressures they face, they have to issue that notice as soon as they possibly can. Now, when they issue that notice, the government might say, okay, we're going to launch the investigation. Here's a bit of money to help you along the way. Increase your 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 um, council tax the next round that you, you can do that. R- remove the caps. London, for example, has a cap on council tax not being increased at a certain time. Remove the caps. Get on with it. And in the meantime, make sure that you're providing these services. But then they might have to say actually, we can't deliver on these statutory functions anymore because it's just too much. The government might turn around and say, no, 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 you can't compromise on statutory functions. But then where's the axe going to have to fall? I remember the local government association said, if if these some of these authorities who've issued the 114 notice, if tomorrow they close down every swimming pool, every library, stopped collecting your bins, stopped doing even the most basic stuff, they still cannot meet their legal obligations. Dave, sorry. I mean, I think it's a great story as well. And I think the moment when I thought, okay, Hashi's won was <laughs> when he said, and they're going to be able to come in and do an audit. And I just saw James's eyebrows <laughs> go up the excitement, in excitement. The, and Dave, before we give Hashi a free run at this, is this is the fact that he's walked in here and said, look at all these Section 114s, look at these councils, actually just an indictment of how out of touch we are. Everyone who's living and in those local councils knows that this is going on or in those in those parts of the country. It just so happens that we're in a newsroom that looks at news either nationally or internationally and we aren't close enough to people's lived experience. Do you think that this has been going on for quite a while, that this strain on local governments, we've been talking about it for like they, three, they, four years yeah. in Tortoise. So is there anything particularly new here or is it just a kind of cumulative thing? There's a risk, isn't there, for... for journalism as it's practiced right now that it's very hard sometimes to join the dots and see a pattern where you can look at five local authorities around the country and think hang on a minute what's going on and it takes a specialist who's um in the in the world of local planning legislation and stuff like that to to see the pattern so i i think it is a vulnerability for journalism and actually do us a favor just kick the tires on your own story do you think that realistically, you could have walked in here any time in the last two years and said, there's a crisis happening in local government, or has something significant happened in the start of 2023 that's different? Uh, I think I could have walked in here since the coalition government up until 2019, before the pandemic, and said to you, there's been a cut of 40% in local government spending, and it's impacting areas that might be considered to be luxury but not serious statutory functions. Since the pandemic to today, I can say to you, it has reached a critical situation because of both the pandemic, the cuts finally coming to a head, the inflationary position that we're in, interest rates having gone up, councils unable to service their debts, their services and what they need to deliver on the ground hasn't gone down, it's got worse. And politically, they're all dysfunctional because there isn't proper leadership. There's a rabble-rousing independence running the place. 
There's no foresight. Is that fair? Hang on. Is that fair on the independents? Not all independents are rabble rousers, but a lot of them will have been elected off the back of we can do it better than them. Yeah. We can do it better than them without necessarily understanding the fiscal responsibilities. All right. Well, Hashi, thank you. Let's now take a moment. And as I said at the beginning, I'd love to hear from each of you which story you think should lead the news on the basis that you can't choose your own. So, Dave, which would you choose? I'm going to choose Biden gets to Kiev before Putin. Jess? I would choose local councils in crisis. Hashi? I would choose tomatoes because I really like tomatoes <laughs> in my salad. <laughs> All right. Well, let me have a run at the way I'd run things. I think that, Dave, I'm ashamed to say that tomatoes is going to, would be the third story on the running order. The reason being that although it Tops speaks to a whole... You're <laughs> going to go and, we're going to hear the sound of you eating it. There oh, he is. He's, he's uh, eating it. He's eating his own bribe. He brings, he, he brings goodies and then takes them away from us. Mm. But, but the reason, Dave, I think is that... It is obviously one of those stories where it is right in the lives of people. And so many newsrooms will say, we should lead on this. We shouldn't be reporting, you know, far away geopolitics. We should be talking about the things that happen in the lives of our readers or listeners or or viewers. But in this particular case, there seemed to me a coincidence of factors, all of which are significant. The weather is significant. The inflationary pressures of energy are significant. <laughs> Brexit significant. But together, I think they are one of those transitory stories which people are experiencing, but it's not life-changing. Funnily enough, I was pretty convinced that I was going to lead on Biden and Kiev, but I actually wouldn't do that. And I'll tell you why. I think that the that's the most significant world event There's no question at all. But people have been surrounded by Ukraine news. And it's important that they know that Biden went to Kyiv. It's important that we get all of those other factors in, the Putin speech, the Chinese meeting. But the reason that I'll choose Hashi's story to lead the news is that, A, I love the prospect of a news lead that is Woking Health <laughs> today issued a Section 114 notice. Audit on way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mandatory audit, audit to follow. A news lead which has so many words that people don't understand <laughs> or can't for, to begin to, uh, to tell the significance of. But, but the serious reason is, when I started out in news, one of the things people said was, the job of a newsroom is to tell many people what few people know. And listening to Hashi, it was clear that all three of us, although we had an inkling of this story, it wasn't as though no one knew that local governments weren't having a hard time. This was one of those moments where it felt really clearly you could lead. Woking has issued a section 114. It's the latest in the list of about a dozen that either have or are set to. A crisis in local government is becoming real. It will have these knock-on impacts on services and taxes and adds to a growing financial crisis for the government. It feels to me as though if you led the news on that, you do what in many ways we're here to do, which is make a little better sense of the world. And so for that, uh, what was your headline, Hashi? Local empty coffers. Then we might need to work on the headline. Oh, right, but yeah, that's enough. the story. Uh, thank you very why, much. Why your bins won't be collected? <laughs> now we're talking. A middle-aged man thinks of little else. Um, Hashi Mohammed, uh, Dave Taylor, Jess Winch. Thank you very much for joining us. Most of all, thank you for listening. Next week, I'm going to be back with three more journalists, and they're all going to be trying to convince me that they have the story that mattered most that week—the story that should lead the news. Please join us again for the news meeting.
To get early and ad-free access, you can subscribe to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.